Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, June 10th, 2019. And I'm Cara Santa Maria. And this week, we're going to be talking to Katie McKissick, also known as Beatrice the Biologist. But before we do, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible. So, as you know, I say it each week. I say it the same way each week, too, which means you're probably fast-forwarding through this right now, but hopefully you're not. Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download, and that's because of the model that I use, which heavily relies on support from patrons just like yourself. Um, Patreon's a little weak lately. Not like Patreon, the website. Like, my, my Patreon is a little weak lately. It's kind of a bummer, but it, maybe it's maybe it's the summer. People got other things to do. Um, if you want to support the show. It'd be really cool. I'm really bad at asking for this kind of thing. It makes me super uncomfortable. But the best way to do it is to go to patreon.com slash talk nerdy. You can read all about how to pledge your support. I do want to thank the top patrons this week, including Phil T. Bear, the zombie drummer, David J. E. Smith, um, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. Thank you guys so, so very much. We couldn't do it without your support. And maybe I'll pick a few other patrons to thank, including Juan Gutierrez. We've got Rob Shrek. We've got, ooh, here's one, Kristen. No last name for Kristen. That's pretty cool. Uh, Jeremy Lemsani. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, let's thank Barb, also with no last name, and Jen Cross. Oh, and Jacob Rochester. And gosh, there's so many of you. This is so cool. David Compton and Juan and Ken Pfeiffer and Dave Crane. Okay, at this point, I'm just saying lots of names and you guys are like, what's going on? One more, only because it looks fun to pronounce. Henrik Jindrik Dusik. Maybe that was right. Maybe it wasn't. Thank you guys all so, so, so very much. All right. Do you want to dive into the show? Because I do. So this week I interviewed Katie McKissick. You guys might have heard Katie because I had her on the show years ago, but there's all sorts of new stuff to talk about. So Katie is also known as Beatrice the Biologist. If you want to see all her work, you should go to BeatriceBiologist.com. She um, is an author and illustrator, former high school biology teacher, incredible science communicator, and her newest book is called Everyday Amazing, Fascinating Facts About the Science That Surrounds Us. It's adorable. It's fascinating. It's hilarious. And you guys have to check it out. So without any further ado, here she is, Katie McKissick. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining me today and coming back on the show after three freaking years. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> I know. I was just like Googling this before we got started. March 7th, 2016, you were episode 101. Isn't that cool? Oh, my God. And you just had your 200th not too long not ago. Not too long ago. Yeah. Wow, now I think trippy. I'm in the third 240s, maybe. Oh, my gosh. This is bizarre. Yeah, I think I'm in. I'm definitely in year five. Ah! Wow. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't even living in this house yet. Lots of things have changed. But I'm so glad that you're back. And you're back to talk about your newest book. You've also got another book that came out in between when you were on the show and um, and this go around. So maybe we can mention both. I want to start, though, for, for those who maybe don't remember, because it was three freaking years ago, um, the episode that you joined us on by talking a little bit about Beatrice the biologist, because your books are written by Beatrice, the biologist, but you are Katie McKissick. Yeah, I have a secret identity or something. <laughs> it It's kind of funny. So yeah, so I started my blog and I called it Beatrice, the biologist, because 
I kind of wanted to have this mascot character in mind, and I I don't know. I just wanted to name it after, yeah, a character. Mm. So I chose that name. I've always liked the name Beatrice. I like the alliteration. That's pretty much it. So I just started blogging under that that kind of brand. But then it turned out to be really useful to have this other name. I mean, even my friends will ask me something about science. They'll go, so Beatrice, like, tell me about yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> So it just it just kind of worked it worked out and then um, when I was when my first book came out and I was having kind of like imposter syndrome like flurry of like I can't do this people are going to read this it's too scary uh, my sister in law gave me a really good piece of advice was to think was to use Beatrice the biologist as like Beyonce's Sasha Fierce like that's your stage nice. presence like even though you would not do this and you are uncomfortable like in the limelight Beatrice is all about it so just, just try to channel that or something. Thing. So it's worked that. out well. Yeah, um, I love that. And and Beatrice is, um, she is an artist. Really, Katie's an artist. But Beatrice <laughs> is also an artist. Um, she's a biologist. Most everything that you talk about, but that's also not true because you have so much physics in here. But early on, you were doing mostly biology, right? Right. And that was the, that's the only thing I regret about naming it Beatrice the biologist is because I kind of, yeah, I put myself in too small of a box. And it should have been like... Sally, the scientist. I don't know. That's yeah, dumb. but like most people don't honestly know the difference between what a biologist yeah. and a physicist do anyway. It was really just because I taught high school biology mm. and I just and I I never had actually um, a female science teacher. I had a couple of chemistry professors who were women, but I don't think I even in college. Oh, no, I take it back. There was I had one professor who was a woman in biology. Just one. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like It was just all dudes. And it's so funny because biology now is one of the ones, I think it was the first of the sciences to get pretty close to 50-50. Yeah, yeah. So. Like psychology, I would say, and some of the social sciences went beyond, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's, I don't even know what the number is, but at least at my university um, where I'm working on my psych degree, I want to say it's like 70, 80% women. Yeah. Um, but even when I was in grad school, undergrad was a little different, I think. But when I was in grad school, I think I was close to 50-50 for bio professors. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, now, I mean, chemistry and bio, the students are, it's 50-50, mm -hmm. but the professors, the old guard, it's still just... It's yeah. just so many dudes. So that's um, true. I may have like subconsciously been seeking out female professors too. Like you can sometimes kind of choose who you take your courses from depending on, you know, how many people offer. Mm -hmm. And even though my major professor, my PI for my master's was a man, the I had a woman on my thesis committee. I made sure she was like in a neuroscience lab next door and she was really cool and I loved taking her classes. So I put her on my committee. So t picking a female name was for me kind of just another way of just trying to be that example or just just go against that oh yeah if you're a biologist it's going to be a, like it reminds me of when um elise andrew of i fucking love science when mm -hmm. everyone found out it was a girl that was doing the or a woman that was doing the count they were like what I they were like mad it. i yeah. just wanted it i just wanted it to be very clear that it was that it was a woman behind it um without having it you know just just with the name yeah just being kind of done with it and did it you know like early on kind of having this pseudonym Obviously, people do this for so many different reasons. It's like, like you said, you were mostly developing a character that you thought would be um, that would make a lot of sense tied to the blog and tied to the, you know, wonderful um, animations and on all the cool merchandise that has come out of it and everything. Having this character makes a lot of sense. But along the way, did it serve you kind of psychologically? Did it serve you sort of in your mental health to be able to have your life somewhat separate from this other world? 
Yeah, because I'm an incredibly private person. I just don't want to share anything with anyone. Like even on my personal account on Instagram, I'm just like, I don't want to even, I don't, I don't, who cares? Like, why would anyone want to hear this from me? Like social media for me is so hard because I'm like, I, I push, I put this on there. Would anyone care? Like, I, does it matter? I don't, ugh. so I don't know. I feel like that every day. Yeah. Like, I never I, know what to post. When I do post stuff, I'm like, I don't know why this matters. Like, the only thing I actually put effort into on social media is sharing other people's news articles. Sure. Like, oh, here's science stuff. I delete 99% of the <laughs> tweets I write. I write it out. I'm like, no, I'm good. No one needs to read this. <laughs> I, I wrote it, so it served me. It's like it's like, it's like I'm journaling into the ether. I just like Seriously. write it and delete it. And I love on. that. I love it's that. It's like, who cares? It's good. It's good practice, I yeah, think. That's like no. a good like personal kind of, I don't know, growth activity. But no, it totally has been nice to have this little kind of separation. Like this mm. is the Beatrice stuff and this is the Katie stuff. And cool. And so speaking of the Beatrice stuff and the Katie stuff, when did you first start out um, as Beatrice Biologist? Like, when did she first start her blog? It's, I don't have like a specific date. I should actually try to go back and figure out like the first day mm -hmm. I really started. But it was, it was like 2010. So I'm coming okay. up on like 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And then, so from writing the blog and doing these really great, what would you call them? Like cartoons, these drawings? Yeah, these comics. Comics, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So doing these comics and really telling not just really important fundamental kind of stories about how the world works, like a lot of them are really great explainers, but also infusing, I think, some, I don't know, some ethics and some sensitivity into those conversations as well, which is super important. So so you, you started out doing the blog, you're doing the comics, you've made all this really cool merchandise, which is great. So you can have like Beatrice Biology stationery and Beatrice the Biologist Um what all do I have in there? I have a bunch of like buttons and stickers <laughs> and like fun things. Um, but then ultimately you started to write. So we'll get to these two books um, in just a second. But on the flip side of that, Katie has always worked on the Beatrice Biologist stuff. But you also have done other science communication work, not as Beatrice the Biologist. Right. And that's, a, and that's always been, it's actually gotten to a point where it's challenging. And I'm like, they're starting to some sometimes merge and yeah. I'm like, don't know how I should do that. It's, it's whatever. It's, it's the career of like our generation. It's like, wait, what? Do I try to tie them or do I keep them? Yeah. Set? Do so, what you can, yeah. make the money, do the work that you love, try and make the branding work and get paid. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. this is the freelance lifestyle. So yeah. So I've always, I've always had other gigs too. So as Katie, I worked at uh, USC and at the engineering school and I did comics and podcasts and videos for them about the what the engineering professors do. So mm -hmm. I would just go talk to a professor and spend an hour with them. He'd be like, so what are you working on? And it, it was cool because it wasn't just recent publications, which is such, I don't yeah. know, a hamster wheel of like... It's like press releases oh, over and over. God. So I didn't have to do that, which was yeah. really cool. I got to just sit down with them and be like, what are you about? What are the basic questions you're trying to answer? And how are you doing it? And what interests you about this? How did you get interested? It was like really holistic. Oh, and so I it was that. really cool. I When were you... So that was Viterbi, right? Yeah, that was like 2013, 2014. Because I recently just had like a rash of Viterbi... Um, professors on the show. Like, I, I kind of tried to space them out. Oh, yeah. But, like, <laughs> Stacey Finley was mm -hmm. on recently, and Birchin, uh, oh, I can never pronounce her last name, Berserik. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, don't I think that's how you... Yeah, yeah, but super cool. Like, yeah. there's so many... And all women. So many, mm-hmm. like, badass women doing cool stuff in the engineering department there. What a fun job. Yeah, it was it was awesome. But I probably would still would still be doing that for them. Um, but then I found out about an opportunity at the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I was over there working for, like, the Solar System website and NASA Space Place and stuff like that. And that was... I was doing that for them when I was on with you last time. Mm-hmm. And your background is, is it in any of those fields? No. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. And so did you have to kind of self-teach as you were working on doing all this outreach? Or was it mostly like because it was elementary level like stuff that you were pretty comfortable with? It's funny because, yeah, it was, I mean, I have just have a background in chemistry and biology. So it's... I have, so I have the fundamentals to, mm-hmm. to get all that stuff. Like I have the scaffolding sort of, but no, I was like, wait, we don't know how many moves Saturn has. I thought we knew that. Like, I don't know what. <laughs> so no, it was, I got to learn on the job. It was amazing. That's really cool. Those are the best kinds of jobs, aren't they? Where you're like really pushed outside of your comfort zone and then you find yourself being better for having done it. No, totally. I yeah. learned so much at Viterbi from all the engineering professors. And, and it's so funny, like from coming from a science background, when like sometimes I would be talking to them what that what they do and I would just assume that they were taking like a science approach to it like I was talking to someone who was researching how woodpeckers are able to smash their head against something so many mm-hmm. times and not give themselves brain damage and she wanted to see if it could inform helmet design and so, so she tells me that and I was like oh so do you get like a bunch of woodpecker skulls and just smash them into stuff she was like no <laughs> <laughs> like no, <laughs> like we we they they basically got one woodpecker skull, and took all measurements and took all the densities of the bones, whatever, and then they built a, a replica out of materials that have similar properties and that whatever. And I was like, oh. you're like, oh yeah, you're an engineer. <laughs> I know, like, oh Katie, your science is showing. <laughs> like, they're not just pulverizing actual woodpecker skulls in their lab every day. <laughs> God. That's awesome. Oops. Are there any Beatrice the Biologist uh, comics about woodpecker skulls? Uh, I did a video for Viterbi about it. That's awesome. So, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so then um, after you left um, uh, NASA JPL, have you been more focused on like pure freelance work? Have you turned your sights back to Beatrice the Biologist more or have you had other other gigs here and there? I Then I went to the Natural History Museum. Oh, I forgot you worked there for yeah. a while. I remember being there for some event. And being like, oh, you're on staff here. Yeah. Now. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like the the science writer for the research and, commu- and uh, collections department. That's so cool. Such a cool job. And same thing. It was like, I just learn at, yeah, I just got to learn every day at work while I was there. Uh, it was the best. I'm jelly. That's a really cool job. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> cool. So, so how long were you there? Uh, a couple years. Yeah. Like two years. Nice. Yeah. And yeah, it's been an interesting couple years. Like I had a kid. She's like two and a half. I've had some some health conundrums. Like it's not like I have cancer or anything, but I've had some health issues mm-hmm. that have totally taken away from all my stuff. I yeah. did manage to write this this book we're going to talk about last year. I took I took time off work and just focused on that. I didn't do anything else, which was a total first for me. I've yeah. always been working and doing Beatrice stuff and then doing freelance on top of that. So I've always had like three things at, at any given time. Mm-hmm. So to just actually quit everything else and just write a book for four months was... Amazing. But isn't that like, honestly, the way to do it? I feel like when I talk to people on the show and lots of the the interview subjects um, that 
interview subjects. That's such a gross way to put it. Lots of the people, <laughs> how about people that I talk to on Talk Nerdy um, have written books and a lot of them are like professors or they're working scientists or blah, blah, blah. And they do, they take sabbatical. It's like, I mean, not always, but the ones who do, it's like, yeah, that's the only way to write a book. Like it's really hard to do when you're trying to do a million other things. Yeah, I managed, I did manage to do the genetics book while I was working, but I truly didn't do anything else. I gotcha. emailed the people that I would normally expect to see in three or four months and said, you will not see me. Yeah. I will say no to every invitation. It was wonderful, by the way. <laughs> um, so I really did. I, that was truly all I, I I worked a nine to five. I went home and wrote until I went to bed every single night. And then that was my weekend. So that was it. So you still had the regular job, but you yeah. were able to leave your job at work. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, yeah, it wasn't mentally exhausting or anything. It yeah. was, it was, it was, I was at Viterbi and yeah. it was fine. So. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, I didn't have a kid. I didn't have any other responsibilities. So that's all I did. But yeah, this time around, there was just absolutely no way. So it was so cool, though. Like, just sat down every morning with a cup of coffee and just just typed until noon, had some lunch, and then just edited what I typed all morning. Mm. <laughs> and then so, and some days I was like, wow, that was really good. Look at, look at that. that. That's actually a pretty good sentence. And other days I was like, what is this? <laughs> what was I doing? But that's such good advice. I feel like the more that I struggle with writing, I don't really write professionally much. I, I co-wrote a book with SGU, but like, honestly, I maybe wrote like five of the chapters. Like it's a big book and it was written by five people, you know? So, but I, I right now my biggest writing challenge is academic because I'm back in school and so I'm having to write all these papers all the time. And when I talk to professional writers like you, like Jason Goldman, like my, you know, a lot of my friends who do this for a living, the biggest piece of advice they always give me is like, just get a first draft on paper. Like it doesn't matter if it's garbage. But I struggle with that so much. Like how do you, how do you allow yourself to do it? Do you like write with your mouth? Like, do you transcribe or do you actually sit down and write with your fingers and just kind of go, well, I don't, that doesn't make sense, but I'll just keep going. You don't, how do you keep yourself from going back? Yeah. I mean, I can see how being a perfectionist, being analytical and wanting to just have everything look good from the beginning mm -hmm. is, it's, it's really hard to get over that. But, but yeah, I just know that something's better than nothing and it just keeps getting easier. I mean, it's the first step is always the hardest one to take, but yeah, I just, I just say, I'll fix it later. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. And you have time to. That's the thing. You yeah. built it into your schedule. Yeah. On a typical day for you, like when you were working on Everyday Amazing, which of course we'll dive into, like I keep saying in a second, um, like how much would you get on the page? I think I was writing about a thousand words a day. Okay. And then, and yeah, I, what I did was I, I kind of planned out that I, what I, what, a, like what word count I wanted to get to every day. And mm -hmm. I wanted to average about a thousand words a day. And then I would just edit in the afternoon, not necessarily the same thing I wrote that morning, but mm -hmm. I would just be kind of editing in general each afternoon. Cause I was kind of spent in terms of actual like creative energy yeah. and producing something. I was like, okay, I can't do anymore. I'm start, kind of brain dead, but it's just a different mode when you're editing stuff you've already written and being like, oh, well, this is just this whole paragraph, this whole kind of 
tangent I went on is just garbage. Goodbye. You know. Yeah. Um, or like, oh, this is the part where because when I write a lot, I will not be able to come up with the right word, and instead of wasting a lot of time, I'll just put in like X's because yes. I know, like contextually, yes. you can read it and know what you're looking for, and then later when you go back to edit, you're like, oh, duh. Like the word sometimes is already on the tip of your tongue. Other times you can sit there with a the thesaurus and you can like find what you're trying to say. Right. I mean, there'd even be times where I would see that there was an opportunity for some kind of analogy or like little joke, and I would go insert joke here later. Yeah, and then yeah, just yeah. move on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. What was interesting, too, is that because I was only doing that, I got to see the very cyclical nature of how I felt about it on any given day, because I would say about once a week I had a day where I would go, oh, no, this is not going to come together. Yeah. This book is going to be garbage. I like. I think my entire premise is flawed. Like this is just not going to oh, work. No. And and so I would just every like almost once a week like clockwork. Then that was what was so interesting about it was that I got to see oh that that's that's this day this week. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I would just go shut up, Katie, and just keep typing. <laughs> and then sure enough, like the next day or the day after, I would reread it and go. This is going to be fine. It's going to, it's, it'll be great. It'll come together. Don't worry about it. So much of like art and not just art. I mean, these are all constructs anyway. So I think it's kind of like silly to waste time figuring out what word I'm looking for right now. But so much of, of content or production or whatever you want to call it is contingent on your mood, isn't it? It's so subjective. So like if you're in, if you're having a, like an, I'm not a good person day, like a bad mental health day and you're producing, it's so important like you do to not self-edit the whole time because later you might be like, oh, that was gold, but I was feeling so bad about myself that I thought it was too pedantic or I thought it was too like depressing or whatever. But later you look and you're like, oh my God, like look at the insights that I came mm -hmm. to. Well, and also if you have... If you have good taste and you're critical then of other of other stuff, you're of course you can be critical of yourself of course, too. So yeah. so you're you're I mean, it's it's like the thing they say about not comparing your your insides to other people's outsides. Mm -hmm. It was like, yes, don't don't take a critical eye that you would go take to a you know, a finished book or a finished whatever. Don't apply that to your first draft. Like just do not do that. Yeah. Because everything is is just half formed garbage at first. Yeah. Of so course. no. Same way you wouldn't ask a toddler to to, you know, to drive a car. Like that's <laughs> just not gonna work out well. They'll do it eventually, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, dear God, like just give them a second. And nobody's going to read your first draft except no. for you. No. But that's really where the pressure comes in, right? Is that like you're responsible for the curation and you're responsible for determining, at least in the early stage. I mean, ultimately, you have an editor, which is amazing. But, you know, some editors are more heavy handed than others. Some ed editors are really hands off. So like ultimately you're deciding whether the thing that came out of your brain is worthy of other people's eyeballs and whether it's not, which is like a lot of pressure. No, and I, and I'm, I am my own worst enemy. I'm, I realize that more and more like every, every year as I go through life, I'm like, God, I really need to be nicer to myself. Yeah. Cause yeah. So I would just be like, ah, this is terrible. Why did I even do this? But it's fine. And, and it's also, fine. you know what you I find to too is that there's this like, there's this, how do I word it, kind of um, uh, temporal or maybe chronological change that occurs psychologically when your headspace is um, is dynamic. It's variable. So like I used to date a guy and his favorite thing that he would always say was like, who was in my body? Like he would look back at old stuff that he did and be like, who was in my body? Like I don't even know that person. And it's so true. Like looking back at old 
podcast episodes or old papers that I wrote. And sometimes you look back and you're like, wow, this, this self, this identity, this, um, this person is so salient and like so consistent that I see myself in papers I wrote in college and I hear the fruits of these like early ideas coming out and I'm like kind of proud of them. And then other times you read things and you're like, oh, what relationship had I just gotten out of that I was in this like dark ass place. No, I I went back and read some papers I wrote in college because I came across them when I was cleaning, whatever. And yeah, same thing. I read them like, well, I'm really smart. Yeah. These papers are really good. <laughs> Who knew? Because <laughs> like, I don't remember writing them now. But um, And then you find old poetry and you're like, oh, oh God. Yeah. Like, yeah, I found like my high school journals and saw emo and like just these sad drawings and oh, man. So, so yeah, totally. Both. Um, both. But it was funny because it was the first time I think truly in my life. Like, I don't want to be dramatic about it, but it was the first time I didn't let myself get swept up in that. It was like, this is just a cloud and it's going to keep, it's going to blow over. Just mm-hmm. don't let it distract you. It's just going to feel like that sometimes. Just accept it and just keep typing. And I, and I did. It was so weird. I was, and then, so whenever that day came up, I was just like, oh, that's the, that's, that's today. And whatever, I'll just keep going. I love that. I'll figure it out later. And is is that, do you think, you know, obviously personal growth, being older, being a mom, being all these things, but also just like having deadlines, having gotten an advance on the book, knowing that the publisher is, like, it's a job. Like, it's not some big kind of pet project, art thing. I mean, even though your soul is tied up in it, like, ultimately, you owe a certain number of pages and you have to deliver them by this date and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. <laughs> I'm not giving you that huge check back. <laughs> exactly. I refuse. I refuse. Um, so yeah, just got to get it done. There's it, no other way. Isn't the advanced pro- process like weird? Like it makes sense, right? Because as a writer, you have to have the money to do any reporting or any research. You, you know, you have to be able to get paid for the months and months of time that you're working. But yeah. at the same time, if you don't deliver, you legit have to give it back. Mm-hmm. And they also, they also had a bonus if you turn it in on time, because I think... So, I mean, I'm guessing they must yeah. have this kind of tug of war at the very end when someone's like, ah, oh, it's even more like two more weeks. So they were like, here's your deadline. Oh, that I just had to negotiate that too. Mm. They're like, oh, we want it. Oh God, what was it? I think they wanted it like six weeks earlier than what I eventually negotiated to. And I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way I can get it to Because four months then. is short anyway. Yeah, they wanted it in under three. And That's I was like, nuts. no like, way. A lot of people take a year to write a book. Yeah, no, I know. I yeah. was like, I, but they just, it was funny how it all, the timing, because I, I pitched it. Around this time, I think around May of last year was when they were kind of deciding on it. So I think I pitched it in April or whatever. And even that, like speaking of imposter syndrome, when she called to tell me that they were doing it, I didn't even understand that that's what she was saying. She was like, <laughs> she was like, yeah, we really like it. And, um, and, and why did she say, it sounded like something was still contingent. So, yeah. I was, so she said, yeah, yeah, we're, we all really like it and we're going to do such and such with it next week. And I was like, oh, okay, so then you'll tell me if you guys <laughs> want it or not. And she was like, no, no, we, we, we want it. We, we're buying this book from you. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> oh. That's awesome. And that was, I'm looking here, that was Simon & Schuster. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so this book, it's called Everyday Amazing, Fascinating Facts About the Science That Surrounds Us. And I love that. I, I'm assuming this was the first um, printing that you, you did it intentionally, not as a hardcover book. 
That actually is just completely up to the publisher. I, I had, like it. Yeah. I have to be honest because the thing is, A, it's more affordable. Mm-hmm. It's 20 bucks instead mm-hmm. of like 35 or 40. Right. Which is, I think, important for something that's so beautiful because it's like full color. Yeah. When they told me they were going to do full color printing, yeah. I was like, dang. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that can get really pricey really quickly. Yeah. And what you don't want, I think, for certain books, sure. But for other books, I think the more it becomes like a coffee table book, the less it becomes something people actually read. I know. And so I like that this is like a book that you can throw in your bag that you can actually read every day. You can put it by your bedside and do a little at a time, or you can fly through it if you want to. And nearly every page has (laughs) one of your beautiful comics, one of your amazing illustrations. It's ridiculous. It's awesome. I only loved, I I wrote it in three months and had the the fourth month to do the illustrations because I was like, a month is so much time. It is not that much Yeah, and then you're like, oh, this is like every page. Yeah, and I was like, oh my God, I have to do over 10 of these a day. Oh my God. Like I, oh my, what have I done? (laughs) That's so much. It was, I mean, I... When I turned it in, there were 252 illustrations, and I actually should go through and count how many want, because I think mm-hmm. we cut maybe three or four, or and did I add any? I don't know. It's around 250. I, I should look up the exact number. But anyway, it was so many. So when I started planning out that phase, I was like, oh my God, I should have given myself more time. So yeah. I had this really breakneck pace. I was... I, when I, I sketched them all out and then I was doing pen and ink and scanning them. And then I was like a machine coloring all those in. I just put them in Illustrator and then just do like background colors. And I was like, it was so intense. But the cool thing is doing them that quickly together. I mean, you have a very particular style anyway, so maybe this wouldn't be an issue, but it would help you with some consistency. It did. I was going to say, I made it very consistent because once, and that's, that's why I didn't do them throughout. Cause if I do like one here and there then but yeah, as soon as you get into that mode and then it was just like an assembly line, it's like, yeah. And then the book really does have like a tone that is very kind of clean. And as you flip through, you're like, oh yeah, like I remember those little water molecules, like they show up a couple of times and earth looks the same every time earth says hello, (laughs) um, which I love. And I like to, and I wonder if you've ever gotten any flack for this. I like that you anthropomorphize all of these little um, things, whether they be organisms or molecules, or even like there's a bar of soap in here with a, with a smile. Um, your brains have little faces, your neurons Yeah, the have brain faces. is the one that I'm like, this is very confusing. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Should I put the eyes where the yeah, eyes where the are? Eyes? Should I put the eyes where, where, the where you cross it? Yeah, like, oh, this is just, I don't know about this. <laughs> this is weird. And and there's like so many. I mean, your trees have cute little eyes. I just saw a martini glass with a face on it, a lump of coal. I think that's a lump of coal. Oh, it's just yeah, it's rock. a rock. Yeah. yeah, it's a rock. Um, I love it. Do you, Has anybody ever given you crap for that? Like, mm. oh, you shouldn't make Saturn have a face. Like once, but screw that guy. Yeah, seriously. He's just like some troll on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, good. Because what I think is so cool about making them a cute, like that's, I think, a word that is a safe word to use Mm -hmm. for almost all of your comics Mm -hmm. is that they're really, really cute. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And B, they have feelings. It makes them approachable. Absolutely. That's always what I'm going for. I hate when someone feels like they're not welcome somewhere. Like... Just even in like everyday life, if I'm at a gathering and there's someone who doesn't know everybody, like I'm definitely just like, hey, or if someone gets talked over, 
And then like the mm-hmm. conversation, kind of, and then there's a lull again. I said, so what were you saying? Like, I make sure it's like, I was listening. So don't, yeah. don't worry. I'm, I'm here. I got you. Yeah. That's <laughs> I important. Just, I like, I like harmony. I like people to feel included. I feel so sad when people left, feel left out of things. I'm sad when I feel left out of things. I don't want people to feel like that. It's just awful. So I'm always trying to go for welcoming. Yeah. And that's why, yeah, things are so goofy and silly and... I don't know. It just it just makes it more relatable. And when I was teaching that, I was that's what I was going for too. I was just always trying to think about how I could make my students laugh, or or how I could get them to think about something and have have just like an, a reaction to something, yeah. even if it made them sad. Like when I told them about Rosalind Franklin and and how that all that played out, um, they were like, "Oh my god, that's so messed up," but they remembered it. Yeah. So well, because if you if you have an emotional response, I mean, it just it's just in your brain longer. Like those connections have longer to form and they're being connected to different parts of your brain if you're having an emotional reaction to something. So if you think something is funny or cute, it's just more memorable. You know, I, lately, I want to say more and more lately, I'm so glad that this is sort of the, the way that the conversation has started to go a little bit because I've been struggling sort of um, ethically with this conversation or this conversation conundrum about science and skepticism and emotions and logic and blah, blah, blah. Because the more I'm doing like psychology work, I still consider myself a very strong, very dedicated skeptic, right? And I still think that like, when we make policy decisions, or when we um, are trying to understand how the world works, we need to maintain neuropsychological humility, we need to understand all of the biases that our brains have, and like how our brains play tricks on us, and how easy it is to make decisions that aren't really informed by logic. But I think we make this false dichotomy in our arguments where we're like, there's logic and reason, and then there's emotion. And like, we shouldn't fall victim to emotion. We should only use logic and reason. But that's bullshit, right? Like, emotion's in everything. Yeah. Like, there should be an emotional component to what we do and how we think and how we make decisions. And we should either use it to our advantage or work really hard to try and understand how it interplays with the logic and reason. And sure, I don't think that we should ever make a decision based on like truthiness, like a gut reaction that's not at all informed, that we're not willing to to try and develop. But like, I don't think we should strip the emotion out of it because A, it's not even feasible <laughs> yeah, to <I> do that. <laughs> and B, like, I don't think that good skepticism means not, it means being like an automaton. I know. And that's what people think it is. Mm-hmm. They think that, and I actually, I talk about this because there is one chapter that's just about how our brain works oh, and how cool. it's, and like I got, I go into a section about how memories are so unreliable, but it's like, what are you supposed to do? Like think that everything in your brain is, is fake. Like yeah. that all your memories are wrong. Like how are you supposed to, you can't live life if yeah. you can't trust anything. So it's like, you have to have, find this like thing in the middle. Um, but no, it's it's called our squishy brain blob, mind blowing neuroscience. Yeah. I love it. Oh my gosh! Don't worry, I got this. <laughs> Look at your happy so it's, little it's brain. It's part like yeah the the stuff the neuroscience stuff. I mean, part of it is just how our brains you know experience how how like it's so much of it is about sensory input and just how actually fascinating it is like how eyes work how like how we're able to get through a day and navigate things um, <laughs> i love this uh, this memory that's being replayed over and over i saw a huge spider the size of a nickel a quarter a koala it's like oh what because yeah, every time you tell a story you're editing it slightly yeah. or you can i mean and you, every time you retrieve the memory you're actually rewriting it a yeah, little bit like yeah, that yeah. is so scary i know i mean i'm sure everyone has in their family someone who has changed a story over time because it's been you know depending on how long you've known them like decades you're like that is totally not what happened but maybe i'm wrong like 
And you also have this thing. I have some friends, actually, and some family members where, like, they have absorbed your memories. Mm -hmm. So they'll tell a story and you'll be like, that happened to me, not you. Oh, I totally talk about that because I had one of those. I, like, (laughs) I remembered my brother like walking out of his room and shoving his um his comforter into this like really small it was actually like a laundry chute but like a little cabinet that was like one foot square and he was shoving this huge comfort into it like and I came out of my room was like what are you doing and he was like oh I don't know because he was sleepwalking and then I told that story and he was like that was you like you were sleepwalking and doing that and I was like oh yeah that checks out that I, yeah. yeah I was the one who sleepwalked so that makes sense <laughs> Okay. That make, okay, cool. I'll, I'll uh, fix that. <laughs> and yeah, I was sleepwalking. So obviously my memory was kind of was half there, but primed to be overwritten. So I just thought it was him doing that. Amazing. But um, have you ever sleepwalked, by the way? I have not. I, mm-hmm. I um, obviously am really fascinated by the phenomenon. I've studied it quite a bit. I've read and watched a lot of really cool documentaries about it. And I did have a boyfriend once who was like, I've dated actually a few people who had sleep terrors, sleep paralysis, sleepwalking, hypnagogic uh, hallucinations, hypnopompic. But I dated one guy specifically who had horrific like sleep, um, I guess, what do you call it? I mean, it's sleepwalking, somnambulism, right? Mm. But he would do weird stuff because he would have these dreams and you'd wake up in the middle of the night and he'd be like holding up the wall of the bedroom because he was afraid (laughs) it was falling down on us. But he like wasn't awake, you know, or like one time I woke up and he was like perched on the nightstand. Oh, my God. Yeah, like a little like um, like, a, like, like a, a gargoyle. Or yes, like a gargoyle. <laughs> and I was like, uh. So like I've been near sleepwalking in a way that's like slightly terrifying. I sleep talk way more than I sleepwalk, fortunately. Now. So. But did you sleepwalk a lot when you were a kid? I've in my whole life, I've only done it like five times. Okay. I did it like. Three or, yeah, like three or four. I can, so there was that, the shoving, the comforter thing. I one time just brought my comforter. It was always the comforter. It always involves the comforter. <laughs> I brought one into my sister's room and just woke up there. Oh, and, yeah. um, and then, oh yeah. And then there was one time I was having a dream. Someone was chasing me. So I was, and I was looking for the door in the dream and in my, in real life, I was yeah. in my room looking for the door. So I was pulling everything off the walls because I was a teenager. I had a lot of stuff on my, on my walls. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Down. And then as an adult. I one time took the comforter off the bed and um, my he wasn't my husband at the time, but my husband was sleeping before that happened. And I pulled the comforter off the bed and he was like, uh, <laughs> and I would no memory of this, but we just did watch Hellraiser. So I had just watched a horror movie. So my brain was kind of in that space. So I gathered the comforter into my ha- arms and I went, the little boy in the living room asked me to bring this to him. <laughs> <laughs> he's cold. That's the creepiest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. It's so bad. It's so bad. And he my husband was like, like, what the? <laughs> like, he's, he loves horror movies. Like, nothing scares him. And he, but like, except little kid ghosts. Yeah, it's like his also, only thing. Also, like, real life horror is legit scary. <laughs> like, like and come on. So, yeah, I like, have all the, and he was like, oh my God. And so he, like, pushes me in bed and, like, throws the comforter back on the bed. And I, I'm, like, blissfully asleep after that. Like, quiet. <laughs> it's like, fine. And, um, and, but he like put the comforter on wrong or like the duvet was not like centered. So he kind of started feeling it pull and he's like, oh my God, the little kid goes to try to take it from me or something. So, ah. um, but now, now I just talk a ton. So Weird. hopefully it stays that way. So really it, it, 
from what I gather, it's a, it's a function of like not being as paralyzed. Yes, yeah, so I definitely don't have sleep paralysis. When yeah, people tell me that, I'm like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so some people really do have that where they wake up be- yeah. before their body kind of wakes I'm up. I'm sure there's a genetic component because my I've caught my mom sleepwalking one time. Only once. And she was ta- she got up and she was talking and it was mm-hmm. really weird. And we asked her the next day, like, what were you talking about? And she was had no idea. Weird. It was. I was a kid. My brother and I were um, getting ready for bed. My mom was already asleep. We were like teenagers, so she was in sleep, asleep. We were talking um, quietly, but within earshot of her room, clearly. And she flings open the door and she goes really angrily. And my mom like just isn't angry very often, so it was really like you know just kind of jarring. She said, "Are you two talking about goat cheese out there?" <laughs> and we were like. What? And like my brother looks to me and he's like, is this happening? And I and I was like, oh. and he tried to be a smart ass and say, like, no, we're talking about Parmesan cheese yeah. or something. But instead he actually said goat cheese again. He's like, no, we're talking about goat cheese. Ah, David. He's like, I tried to uh, I messed up the cheese joke. And then and then the door was closed. And we were like, what the what just happened? That's so weird. And yeah, the next day I was like, Mom. No memory. No. Yeah, no memory. So I clearly got it from her. I think it's probably more common than people think because, like, I don't think I have ever walked. I know I've never walked in my sleep. I'm not sure if I've ever even spoken in my sleep. But it seems like almost every serious relationship I've been in, my partner Hmm. had some sort of sleep-related Yeah bizarreness yeah like whether it's constantly walking waking up screaming like having night terrors yeah that was talking weird. a lot like it's yeah i just don't ever get a very good night's sleep. <laughs> yeah i wonder I, I wonder what the incidence is i don't know and what it's and what it's tied to and, and i wonder too if there's like a you know like you said this genetic component but if there's a gender or kind of dimorphism there i don't know but uh, or maybe i just have really bad luck but there's always a lot of sleep related strangeness in my bedroom but it's not me i swear (laughs) i mean i knew even in like like at camp like people would be like you were giggling in your sleep last night that's so cute so that's mostly what i do how nice that you're having such like pleasant dreams yeah like everything's really fun and happy in your in your brain I must be a different person when I'm asleep or something. No, not at all, because it comes through in your beautiful, beautiful. But anyway, that thoughts. whole digression was yeah. I just talk. I talk about false memories. I talk about talk about mental illness to a certain extent too. Yeah. Which, which my whole thing lately, and I, you can tell me because you're you're studying these things. But like, is mental illness not illness? Is it just being human? Like, come on, who who doesn't have something? All right, everyone. I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode. Calm. Now, I've been talking about Calm for a long time because I love it. And if you haven't subscribed yet, I have no idea what you're waiting for. So I thought maybe we'd drill down and talk about something specific this week, and that is sleep. Are you sleeping okay? I'm worried about you. I'll tell you what, when I'm working a lot, I don't sleep very well at all. But Calm has been such a huge help for that because it offers all sorts of really great ways to improve your sleep. Um, It's, you know, the number one app for sleep and for meditation. So you can use it to meditate during the day, which does help with sleep. You can do it in the morning. You can do it at night. I like to do it at night. Different people have different meditation practices. Um, But it also has all sorts of additional perks built into the app that are 
amazing for helping you with sleep. There's a whole library of programs. There are soundscapes. So just kind of like nature sounds that are really incredible, just like maybe wanting to fall asleep to rain or to the sound of wind or to white noise. There are over a hundred sleep stories that are narrated by really soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. And there's also an incredible library of music. Um, I love the sleep music in Calm. I've actually downloaded a bunch of them to the app to be able to use offline when I'm flying on planes or when I'm in areas where I don't have very good service because that's a really cool perk of the app. Um, there's an awesome Moby album right now that I listen to pretty much every night when I go to sleep and I'm out like a light within minutes. So I highly, highly recommend you guys try it out right now. You can get a 25% off uh, a Calm Premium subscription right now. Like if you've never tried it out, now is the time to do it. You've just got to go to calm.com slash nerdy. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash nerdy. Get this, guys. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. You can find out why right now at calm.com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, and I'll, I'll do like the shortest digression ever, but I love that you're even bringing this up because I feel like there's always cool stuff in psychology that I want to talk about on the show, but because my show is an interview show, I end up being like, let me talk about me for a second, and I feel kind of guilty. Um, but there is this view of the DSM. So the DSM is a diagnostic and statistical manual. They call it like the psychiatrist Bible. It's the way you diagnose things you go through. And it's, it's the menu. The yeah, it's the menu. Exactly. <laughs> There's also the ICD, which is the physician's thing. And it has more than just mental illness in it. But DSM is mostly mental illness. Um, so you, it's got all the different diagnoses. It's changed over the years. There's, we're in the five now. I was trained on the four TR, the four text revision. So the five is like, what? Now that I'm back in grad school after 10 years, I'm like, it's all new and weird and different. And there are these two I mean, there's probably a lot of um, of kind of hypotheses or takes or philosophies on it, but there's these two main ones that we often talk about, which is the categorical model and the dimensional model. So the categorical model is that like uh, you diagnose, there are these categories, you either have the thing or you don't like, and there's certain disorders where it's kind of obvious, right? Like that person has schizophrenia. You can kind of tell. Um, I feel like that's always the go-to example. Yeah, we use like, schizophrenia. Or, but there are also some like some sort of personality disorders like um, borderline personality disorder where they're like a little bit more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this view that's the dimensional view, which is the view that I subscribe to, which is that everything's on a continuum. Mm-hmm. And everybody has everything a little tiny bit. And it becomes diagnosable once it interferes enough with your daily functioning, right? So is it interfering with your interpersonal relationships, your ability to do your job, your ability to maintain your family, whatever, like your ability to sleep, you know, whatever. And once it interferes enough, and that's how the diagnostic criteria are usually listed. It's like, you have this symptom, this symptom, this symptom, and you have to have some number out of some other number and they need to interfere to the, you know, be severe to the extent that they interfere. But my view is that, yes, like psychological quote unquote illness is life and life exacerbates these things. There are people who never had a symptom until they lost their job and then it came, you know, or there are people who, for whom the symptoms have always been really present and it's always been really frustrating for them. But I think it's all on a continuum for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. 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 So everybody knows what 
anxiety feels like. Everybody knows what depression feels like, but some people don't really understand what it means to have clinical depression because they know what it's like to get depressed after triggers and then to quickly like to be resilient and to quickly, you know, have that feeling go away. But right. some people don't know what it's like to have a per persistent depressive state. Yeah, to just be two set there. Straight. Like, oh yeah. no, this is just how I am. Or to have the kind of thing where it's like something, they're sad, sure, but then when they have a trigger, their responses are like significantly more intense than what they would be if they weren't depressed and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's different. And the thing is, some of them we do understand more like what's going on neuroscientifically, pharmacologically, all these things. And some of them we just don't. And some of them that we have these great hypotheses, but there's really no way to test it or at least no feasible way. Like with depression, like what are you going to get a spinal tap? What am I going to do like an autopsy to mm -hmm. decide? You know, there are things we we could know if you were dead, but we can't go in into your cells and, and actually measure the amount of some neurotransmitter in your synapse. And I have a feeling that if we started to do that with every single person, we would see so much variability between people and it wouldn't even perfectly match up with the DSM. It would actually get way more hairy the more information we got. Yeah. As opposed to the other way around. And then there's also just the fact that people assume that because if you've been one way your whole life, you're like, isn't everybody like this? <laughs> this <laughs> like, is something I feel a lot. So I work um, as a therapist right now to get my hours for my degree in a group home. So these are, um, and I work with girls. So they're girls who are um, in the foster care system and they're at every different stage of foster. Some of them recently got placed because their parents went to jail. They're going to be out soon. They'll be re reunited with their family. Great. Some of them have been in foster their whole lives. Some of them actually have are on their way to getting adopted. Some of them, unfortunately, will probably never be adopted and they're group home to group home. Some of them are runaways, have been on the streets forever, uh, you know, sex trafficked, like all sorts of terrible things. And one thing that I learn when I'm talking to these kids is that all, almost all of them had this experience that what they their childhood, whether it was incredibly abusive sexually or physically, whether it was just really neglectful or whether it was relatively healthy and then something else happened later, that was their normal so, like, it's a really common experience where a kid who lives in a really abusive household first discovers that, like, all their friends aren't, their parents aren't the same way. Because as long as you're sequestered, right? If you're like, there's you, no comparison. Yeah, you don't go to how would public you know? school until you're in kindergarten or first grade. Like, mm -hmm. you think that that's how every kid grows up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a weird thing how normative family life is and how everything comes back to ages zero to five everything, like so many persistent issues in adulthood come back to how our parents treated us when we were really young and whether or not we were able to make healthy connections with them, whether or not we were able to be soothed by them when we were um, in pain. And um, it, it helped us form trust. It helped us form all of these really basic, fundamental, necessary emotions. And you see it in the animal kingdom as well. I mean, you see it across the board. A healthy upbringing with parents who care for you and who can soothe you when you're hurt helps you develop your own self-soothing mechanisms, your own ability to have healthy relationships. And it just like continues on throughout your life. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. I used to not think so. Like my kind of skeptical neuroscientific brain was like, ah, eh, whatever. Shrinks always love to talk about the past, but whatever. And now the more I research it, I'm like, yeah, it yeah. all comes down to your childhood. I mean, not all of it, but a lot of it. But then you're like, oh, now what? <laughs> now what do I do? I can't exactly. Do but the good news is there's a lot you can do, yeah. right? Is that yeah. you can work on it. You can be kind of, I always like to say, like, if you're struggling in, in your mental health that like, you know, nobody's going to do it for you. And so you have to be ready, but like, there is so much help available, like therapy, medication, um, 
social support groups, all these different things. Like, A, you're so not alone. And we're learning oh that every day. Aren't we learning more and more? Seriously. That, like, like yeah. who isn't? Exactly. Who like, doesn't have this stuff? Who hasn't struggled with depression and anxiety? Who yeah. hasn't struggled even with maybe some more severe thought disorders or psychotic disorders or things like that? Like, the more you learn about it and the more you surround yourself with people who are, like, open and warm and trusting and willing to talk to you, the more you realize like, oh, I'm legit not alone. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. And I think it's really brave of you in a book that's ostensibly and and really about just kind of like cool science stuff. You know, it's that's what it's called. Everyday Amazing, fascinating facts about the science that surrounds us. And you broke it down into these really great, um, really, I think, manageable chunks. So like atoms and then electromagnetic spectrum. And then we've got uh, earth, like earth science, um, a little bit more on earth science, geology, history, photosynthesis. Oh, that's so important. <laughs> it's so hard to understand too. But then once you do, you're like, the world is open to me. Um, water, so important. Um, cells, the brain, genetics. So a little throwback. Um, and then, oh, I love this. And then poop. <laughs> but I love that this poop book. Poop and waste. Yes, that's so us. Uh, that so is actually about all these basic fundamental things that we should know about. We all learn this stuff in school. So this is kind of like a hello, remember? Like you do know this deep down somewhere. Um, it was basically me going, like when I was thinking about a, a book to pitch, mm -hmm. I was racking my brain. I was like, what? what is it that I can do well? What can I actually offer this increasingly crowded space of, of like science writing and science communication. Like what, what is my strength? What do I have to offer anybody? Like, and I kind of decided that my, my talent is taking, is not taking things for granted and kind of revisiting things. Like, why is it like this? Or how does this thing work that we just kind of gloss over every day? And, um, I, so I decided to kind of think of like an average day and the stuff like I'm drinking water right now. Like, mm -hmm. why? Like, what what is with this molecule? And like, why do we like it so much? And like, what's in what am I breathing in from the air? And like, what? Yeah. What waves around us? Like, why can I see you right now? Why can I hear you right now? Yeah. Like, what? What? What are we? How does this all work? And what is what is this all this stuff we experience or quote unquote experience? Because I can't really experience your table, like atomically speaking, but I sort mm -hmm. of do because I press against it. And like the electrons of the the atoms in my skin cells are pressing up against the electrons of the of the atoms in the table and they're repelling each other so I can feel it but but I don't know so anyway I just kind of go through it's like intro chem intro bio and yeah intro geology kind of everything and taking nothing for granted and just trying to kind of you know see the world through you know like the rose-colored glasses and things and just be kind of ultimately uplifting like everything is so cool because I do try to cheer myself up like that which I need to do a lot yeah I'll just be like I'll just think about why the sky is blue and I'll think about stars and I'll just think about how we are just this one moment I mean yeah we're like a speck of dust in the universe kind of people when people say that but we're also this moment in time you know I'm only here because not a single one of my ancestors going back billions of years ever failed to reproduce. I'm this like I'm connected to this long line of of organisms going back to, you know, before they even looked anything like like me. And that's kind of, you know, I'm I'm connected to everything. We're connected to each other. And it's not going to be here forever. That makes it special. Like even if even if we don't destroy ourselves in, in the next hundred couple hundred years, mm -hmm. this planet's not going to be here forever. Like no matter what we do, I mean, that's I don't know. I find that kind of humbling and, and sort of I feel placed by that too. Yeah. And and I think about how you know we're looking for exoplanets around other uh, other stars right now, and I'm like, how many of them are looking for us? And how many how many planets a hundred light years away? 
are searching their sky, looking looking for you know looking for stars and watching them slightly dim as as our planet passes in front of it, and they're getting the actual signatures of our atmosphere from a hundred years ago. Like how many of them are doing? Oh, I just I don't know. I just try to get out of out of the everyday right now because it is really hard. Like it's let's rough. just be yeah. real, and I just need something. So and it was hard to do because. The news was really bad while I was writing it. We won't we'll go, go into that, but it was it was challenging. Yeah, to, I I like stopped checking Twitter because I kind of realized that the news was bad enough. Hearing anyone else's reactions to the news was too emotional for me. Mm-hmm. I just was like, I can't, I can't hear any hot takes on this. Well, and of course, it's going to start to color your <sighs> emotional reaction to the content, and I think. One of the things that you do so well, other than what we talked about before, which is like imbuing these stories, these comic stories with like a lot of just fun and a lot of like human kind of um, emotion, is that you take these things that are fundamentally relevant and you show us why they're relevant as opposed to what many people's default position, I think, is when it comes to basic science, which is, oh, that's esoteric. Like, that doesn't really apply to me. Like, I don't care about, you know, uh, some sort of chemical bond. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter because water is still water to me. And I don't need to know why water is wet. But, like, you show us that understanding the how and the why of, like, everything that we could take for granted every day makes us appreciate our, you know, fleeting position. Yeah, it enriches your life. Absolutely. it It does. It gives you perspective. It... It just kind of, it does help. I don't know. It helps me. And again, <laughs> all I could do is just write what comes out and just be myself and just hope that it's relevant for somebody somewhere. You know, like, that's yeah. just all you can do. And the thing but. is, it's not too hard to understand. I mean, if any book will show you that it's everyday amazing, I mean, it's at a level that is graspable for almost everybody on the planet. And it speaks to you in a way that is really like personal and really fundamental, because I think one of the best things about your take on the way that the world works and whether it be DNA is you, which is your other book, um, which is a a slightly more maybe complicated topic, genetics, although there's a section in Everyday uh, Everyday Amazing about genetics, or it be these like fundamental things about how, you know, how molecules are formed or how the earth, you know, geology works that's not that doesn't make sense but how you know things about the earth um is that these things are not so complicated i mean we can always add layers and layers and layers but we don't need to like at their core these are things that everybody can grasp you don't have to have a phd to understand fundamental stuff which is why we teach it in elementary school like all this stuff your kid knows yeah nothing in this book is new i mean yeah. we have known all of the stuff that I go over, we've known for decades, if not almost a century in some cases. And so. what's, what's that thing? I mean, you must know this better than anybody because you worked at the Natural History Museum for a while. But when you spend time on the floor at a museum and you watch families interact with exhibits, the kids are always the ones who are like, yeah, I already knew that. Or they're like teaching <laughs> their parents, like, did you know that blah, blah, isn't that cool? And the parents are like, how do you know this? And you're like, oh, yeah, they're in school. And this is the kind of stuff you learn in school. So the real question is, why did we forget it? Why did it? like fall on deaf ears. I don't know. I mean, like, I guess our brains get pruned right after school a bit. So we just Mm -hmm. lose, lose some of that. But 
I don't know. There's just this sense in, in our society that science is only for scientists. Yeah. And it's so funny and that I kind of, I push back sometimes when there are these, you know, STEM programs that are so vocation focused. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, learn, learn this so that you can be this kind of engineer or this kind of scientist. And I'm like, what about a kid who doesn't want to do that for a living? Yeah. Like, do they not need to learn this? That's what you're implying. And it kind of concerns me because no one says, read A Tale of Two Cities because you'll be a, a professor of English and teach this course someday. Yeah, They're saying, like, read this book because it will enrich you as a person and it will make you, yeah, a well-rounded human being who can have, who can think about other experiences. Why don't we, why isn't that what science is to us? It's, we really think that it's, unless you are paid to do it, you don't need to know it. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I just, it kind of, it bothers me. I'm not, I don't know why we do it like that. It's because it's such a, it's so fundamental. Like it's fundamental the way that human interaction is fundamental. It's fundamental the way that art and poetry and religion are fundamental. Like knowing how things around you works makes your life like deep. Right now, like if you are the kind of person who just doesn't take the time or never had the gift kind of bestowed upon you of, of deeper understanding of the functions of the universe, the world is opaque to you and it's a little dark, like it's not illuminated. Yeah. I mean, there's, and again, it just gives you such good perspective on things. It mm -hmm. really, I don't know, I like if I could psychoanalyze our country right now, I think the fact that our country is so young is part of the problem. Like to us, something that happened 20 years ago is like ancient history. Yeah. It's like, well, other countries think about ancient history as actually thousands of years yeah, ago. Yeah. So I don't know. I just ha like having that perspective, I I truly find helpful sometimes um, thinking about where our, our world has been in the past and, you know, what past mass extinctions looked like and, and you know, what what the future could hold and, and how this stuff works. It calms me. It's like a blankie for me. So, yeah. When, so when people are kind of like, oh, why do you know that? Or, or you know, when, when we t teach kids like, oh, by the way, you only need to know this if you're an aeronautical engineer. It's like, yeah. what? You know, you huh? Like, huh? Where'd you get that from? We don't we don't teach anything else like that. It's I think so we true. I think we do that with math, too. It's like, why do I need to know this? Um, so you can take calculus and go to college. Yeah, like it, it just serves some sort of end. And then you actually see it come out in political discourse because you you have that standard, well, I'm not a scientist. Right. And it's like, well, you're not an economist either, but you make economic decisions all the time. And you're not really a political scientist either, mm -hmm. but you seem to be perfectly fine, you know, as a politician making, you know, decisions based on what your hot take on the political science. Right. But like all of a sudden, well, I'm not a scientist, so I don't believe in global warming or whatever the case may be. Right. It's like, no, you don't get to scapegoat that. Right. Like it's part of this fundamental need to be, I think, a really functioning citizen. Yeah. And that's that's the other thing, too, that really is like very pragmatic. Like you're going to need to know this stuff because someone's going to try to sell you something based on your ignorance of this subject if you don't, if you're not careful. Yeah. Like, and like that was when I was writing the, the What's in Your Genes now called DNA is You book, like the end of it is like, hey, you we really need to grasp this stuff because our future depends on it. We're going to have to make actual decisions about genetics and you're going to need to know some of the fundamentals. And and yeah, kind of going through Everyday Amazing, the stuff that I talk about is, it, it's the foundational stuff. So if someone tries to sell you something that's just total nonsense, you might be able to pick up on it. 
Because like we were talking before, I don't want to give them free advertising, so I won't mention it, but like a kind of water that was claiming to have enough oxygen in it to actually like uh, give you oxygen you could use in your body. It's like, no, no, you inhale oxygen and it's in your water. You're just going to burp it out, first of all. And second of all, what? Yeah, it was like talking about how like uh, it had like double the oxygen uh, just, of a regular molecule. And didn't it say something like it, it ultra hydrates your spirit? I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, and this goes to the skeptic stuff. Like yeah. watch out. Yeah. Watch out for this stuff. Actually, my husband gave me this water bottle because he, he got it at an event and brought it so he could show it to me because he knew I would think it was funny. But but the person who gave it to him is is one of those sort of general health nuts. Like she's really of into course. But yeah. he he made he teased her. He was like, Oh, so you're gonna have this water that oxygenates you, and then let me guess, you're gonna go to that restaurant and get all those antioxidants. <laughs> I thought you were against oxidants. <laughs> like, what's happening here? I'm so confused. It's so and I see it all the time too, like at, at my gym that I go to, where or actually it's the old gym now, but where they would always try to sell this like alkaline water. Oh god, that was yeah, like one that of was the big ones. Too. Yeah, because they're like Everything you eat is so acidic. So you need, it's just your diet's too acidic. And it's like, well, yeah, food tends to be acidic. Like there's only a handful of alkaline foods. Right. And also like your stomach is acidic. Yeah. So it's like fine. Yeah. <laughs> like and what it's going to happen to that water just, after you drink it's it? It's so hard for people to tease out when something is based on something that's true. Because if you, like I know someone a friend of a friend, whatever, who only drank um, kombucha like mm -hmm. as his water source. And he actually did give himself um, an infection. Like he has like yeast growing in his belly yeah. because his body was so acidic and uh, whatever, like yeah. long story. So yes, if you drank lemon juice all day, it would not be good for you. <laughs> yeah. like, well, you'd probably burn a hole in your esophagus like, oh my God. before anything else happened. So it's so like, so sort of, yeah. I mean, this, this goes back to like mermaid documentary. It was like, okay, yes, there was sonar testing and whales beached themselves, but there weren't any mermaids in no. there. And by People, the way, do you know that they have a term for that now? What? I learned this a couple of years ago when I was doing research for a talk about like the American science landscape, like huh. the TV landscape in America. They call those kinds of programs docu-fiction. Oh. Isn't that rough? Dang. Like the Megalodon and the mermaid and all these documentaries that are like, they take like an inkling right. of truth and they interview legitimate scientists and they kind of twist their words. And, and then blah, they blah. just snowball it. Or, yeah. So they have like a rock that's true and then they just snowball it down and yeah. it turns into this. Mermaid. So <laughs> terrible. Oh my gosh. I still sometimes bring that up but because a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, okay, let me give you the scoop. This is what happened. Because I know people it, and it got them. Oh people yeah. People who are very smart. We're like, oh my God, Katie, you have to see this documentary. It's like, apparently there are, there were humanoid, um, you know, aquatic Whatever. So I was like, what the fuck? Like, um, and then I, the, someone showed it to me and I was like, no, what? Yeah, that's a tough thing to like, like knowing kind of, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that I've had on a million other episodes of, of the show, but like, who do I trust? What do I trust? How? Yeah. And that was it too. People's guards were down because it was on what they thought was a, it was a legitimate channel. science yeah. channel. And yeah. then also on top of that, they call it a documentary. Yeah. But the, you know, we know this, if you go to Netflix and you pull from all the documentaries, you're going to see like documentaries telling you that GMOs are evil. And then you're going to see documentaries telling you that GMOs are the only way to the future. And you're going to see documentaries talking about how, you know, it, it tends to be a lot with food. I find food and Yeah. Health. Food people 
have a lot of like really strong feelings mm-hmm. about going back to emotions and it's not unfounded. Like you have to eat it every day. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, and you're concerned as a mother about your children and yeah. you're, but like there are flat earth documentaries. There <sighs> are anti-vax documentaries. There are just because it's a documentary doesn't mean that it's yeah. truth or that it's reflective of reality. And so that's something we, I think we all have to remember a little totally. bit. Well, Katie, gosh, um, we've been chatting for a whole hour. We haven't gotten to our final two questions. Oh, I, damn it. You know what I should have done is listen to your answer the first time. Unless I might not have even been doing it by episode 101. But I close all my episodes by asking two questions. It'd be interesting to see if they were similar. But I, I don't I even think know if I, I remember them. You. you do? I think I remember Okay. Them. Well, I don't. But do you remember how you answered? I remember how I answered one of them. But here, let's. Oh, let's nice. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, yeah, when you think about the future. Oh, and because you're like in a different place now. You have like a family and oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, last time I was just pregnant. Yeah, but we didn't know. She didn't tell (laughs) us. I didn't tell her. She didn't tell us. Um, So when you think about the future, number one, what is the thing that keeps you up the most at night, makes you most concerned, blah, 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 blah. On the flip side of that, what are you most kind of optimistic and, you know, excited about? Yes, I do remember this from last time and I will, I will, I think they might be similar, but anyway, it's somewhat different. So what keeps me up at night? I think what keeps me up at night is... We kind of touched on it earlier, how easy it is for our minds to normalize things. Mm. That keeps me up at night. Yikes. And and how easy it is for like people. I think all people have to find that balance between being selfish and being empathetic and, and, and also trying to help other people because it's like putting the mask on first thing on the plane. It's like, mm-hmm. don't try to help someone if you're going to die doing it because then they might die too. You know, put your, you know, you have to, some part of you has to be a little selfish, otherwise... You're not going to do anything. Oh yeah, like there's but, all this great documentation in in this neuro or sorry in the um, psychotherapy field of like you have to maintain right. your own mental health first. Right. If you burn out or if you bring your own shit into the therapy room, like you can actually damage people really bad. Like you have to be well in order to help other people with their wellness. Right. So that yeah. balance of yeah, watching out for yourself and watching mm-hmm. out for others and how that moves. And I, and it just kind of in the same way, like we can normalize things and we can also just be like, ah, I just have to focus on my stuff. I can't do with anyone. And there's so much stuff. So how we're going to manage those, that, that's what keeps me personally up at night. I like, how do I take care of myself and also help people without, oh my God. So that's literally what keeps me up at night. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Am I doing a good enough job of anything right now? (laughs) Do you remember what kept you up at night three years ago? I believe I talked about climate change. Yeah. Because duh. Because of course, but, yeah, no, not not an uncommon response. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, that but had to be what I obviously said. important. Yeah. Okay, so what what are you optimistic about? I think it'd probably be kind of similar as mm-hmm. what I said last time. Is that there are so many awesome people who are out there helping. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's the I think that was like a Mister Rogers thing. Someone once told him like. Or he asked his mother in some interview, uh, or he was telling in an interview how when something really bad happened, his mom said, look for all the people who are helping. Mm. Something terrible happened, but look at all the people who are helping. That That's what you need to focus on because, because yeah, there's there are assholes everywhere. They're just everywhere. It's like the Spaceballs ske- you know, sketch about them. It's like, I knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. Yeah. So there's no shortage of those, but there are also so many. And we we can choose what to focus on. You're right. It's increasingly so hard. I mean, again, like I mentioned Twitter Twitter is basically the place where people go to criticize anything, like whether it's a movie or if it's someone, an article, someone or someone's take on something like here, this, this person's wrong and I'm going to tell you why. And so it's exposed me to all kinds of interesting ways of thinking and has gotten me to think about 
how, you know, what my perspective is and how, I, and it's broadened it. But I'm also like, I can't take anyone else's like yeah. input anymore. Um, but anyway, so there are so many amazing people who are doing great things. And I just try to think about them and how if we just, just change a few things, everything's going to be okay. It's so true because I think that the thing is, it's, it's, it's our filter. It's really just our filter because probably for every one asshole, there's like five or 10 yeah. awesome people. Try like, we're just really, our media is really obsessed with like, oh, it was a terror attack. And look at this, like these three people who did this concerted effort to like kill all these people. Right. But then we're here. Look at this. Look at this. Just like. Just, I don't know, bombastic idiot who's just willing to say yeah. crazy stuff. Like, let's just put them on TV. But then, so there's that, too. But then we don't, so like, focus on the stories of, like, the all the people who, like, came out after the terrorist attack or, like, after the school shooting or all of the amazing, like you know, um, community organizing or fundraising or whatever. Like we don't hear those stories. Yeah. Barely. It's like, Oh, we're reporting live from the candlelight vigil or something, but it's like, no, people really step up. They really do. And it's just, and then the preventive stuff on top of that, the people Mm -hmm. who are like working tirelessly day and night to keep the terrible from, from happening. Yeah. I think like the Parkland, um, survivors, like Mm -hmm. they are super inspiring to me. There are a lot of really inspiring people out there right now. So I just try to focus on them and it makes me hopeful. And there's so many kids. I mean, I still feel like we're kids. Like Mm. I don't understand how I'm turning 35 in like two weeks. It's so weird. But (laughs) but yeah, I mean, there are these, there are teenagers who are 20 years younger than me who are activists already. And I, I mean, that's just fills me with hope for sure you know what i'm wondering now that we're talking about this i don't um i'm like one of those bad podcasters who doesn't really listen to many podcasts but i'm wondering if maybe the people listening can like tweet tweet me tweet katie um or just reach out somehow and let us know are there podcasts out there like i try with this show to interview a really cool person doing something really important each week right and like to talk about some good stuff, sometimes bad stuff. You know, like we talk about environmentalism and ecology mm-hmm. and conservation. Sometimes the stories are sad, but like for the most part, these are people who are actively working. But I'm wondering if there are podcasts out there. There have to be where the whole thing is like just telling those stories of the good shit. Mm-hmm. Like that the stuff that doesn't make it to the news, but just like all the amazing people doing amazing things that we can like feel good about. Like if you know about some of those shows, let me know because I might want to subscribe to them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Katie, this was so much fun. Okay, guys, the books are Everyday Amazing, Fascinating Facts About the Science That Surrounds Us. That's the new one. And then the one that came out a couple years ago? Yes. A couple years ago is now, it's been um, re-released, so it has a new title, DNA Is You, The Marvelous Science Behind Your One-of-A-Kindness. And both of these are by Beatrice the Biologist. A.K.A. Katie McKissick. I, <laughs> I didn't think about the fact that if you search McKissick now, it's not going to come up. Exactly. Uh, whatever. I, I so, tag the shit out of it. Beatrice the it. Biologist. Yeah, Beatrice the Biologist. Whoever that is. Well, Katie, thank you so much for being here. As always, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Yay. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn. 
Learn smarter. 